Hey there. Welcome back to The Kicker, the Columbia Journalism Review podcast. I'm David Uberti, a staff writer for CGR and your guide in this weekly journey through media in 2017. We're recording this on Thursday, June 15th, and hoping you're having a good weekend to look forward to. This week, we'll start with some of the media stories we at CGR have been watching over the past seven days, from mass layoffs across the industry to New York Times stories in search of a public editor to a Twitter controversy surrounding the NBA champion Golden State Warriors. Then, my CGR comrades and I will debate whether NBC's Megyn Kelly should be interviewing right-wing conspiracy theorist and noted Trump supporter Alex Jones on Sunday night. And then finally, I will be interviewing James Arkin, a congressional reporter for Real Clear Politics, about what it's like to pound the pavement on Capitol Hill. Joining me for my first two segments is CGR's Murderer's Row of Podcasting, Senior Editor Christy Chisholm. Christy, how's it going? <laughs> no idea how I gained that <laughs> reputation, but and, I'm very proud. And <laughs> along along with Delcourt fellow Pete Vernon. Good to be back again. Yeah, together. Joining this murderer's row. Together you make up the murderer's row for CGR. <laughs> so let's break down the news of the week. Pete, you are the author of CGR's morning newsletter, The Media Today. What are you watching? Um, I mean, I think the first thing that we've all been watching, not just this week, but for a while, is the slow drumbeat of our industry's financial reckoning. Um, and this week, especially the last 48 to 72 hours, has, has been a depressing one. We've seen mass layoffs at the Huffington Post, Vocative, and Time, Inc., and really just sitting and, and watching these reports come in, seeing people on Twitter saying, hey, just so you know, I'm one of those who's been laid off or who's taking a buyout. It's been depressing. It's it's a reminder that for a lot of us, we're replaceable, um, that talent is no defense against the Damocles sword of the industry, the financial situation of the industry. Right. In Huffington Post, at least 39 people felt the axe, including six in their well-known Washington Bureau Vocative, which is sort of a tech and internet-focused website, lost, I think, about two dozen, and then an, an un- no number of journalists at Time, Inc. Yeah, Vocative was, it's their whole editorial staff. They're going to refocus on video. Their sports writing department, which is one of the reasons that I would go to the site, um, is all gone. So who knows what they're doing? It seems like they're turning to video, as many in the industry are, and in the hope that that will save us. Oh, it's so sad. It's a reminder that, I mean, we, we've seen these little upticks in subscriptions and in donations and everything since the election. And I think it made some of us at least feel, not, if not immune to it, like something was maybe improving and getting better. But right. then it's a, a reminder that's happening in only very select few places and and is not like a long-term solution still. Right. Uh, before we move on here, I just wanted to mention an interview given by Time President and CEO Richard Batista to CNN announcing some of the layoffs. And he had one of the best instances of corporate speak I can ever recall in my days as a media reporter. He described the layoffs that his company was undergoing as, quote, we are taking a holistic approach to cost structure re-engineering for the whole company. Not only were these people laid off, but they were also disrespected. Obviously, journalists can see through that sort of language. I don't know why it's necessary. Yeah, it's uh, a bad week and not made any better by bullshit like that. Yeah, right. this is not cards against humanity. We do not need synergistic management solutions. <laughs> right. All right. Good reference, though. Thank you. <laughs> All right, moving on. So the next topic we were looking at, as you mentioned, were some stories at the New York Times in search of a public editor. Uh, last week, James Comey went before the Senate Intelligence Committee and specifically called out a February 14th report 
that had appeared in the Times, was big scoop at the time, and how the Times responded to it now that they have eliminated their public editor position was interesting. They had the reporters who had actually reported and written that initial story respond, explain not who their sources were, of course, but what their process was. They said, we wait on an update for specifics about what former director Comey's criticisms were. Um, But it was just this weird situation where you could see as soon as Comey said it, the internet light up with people questioning what went wrong, why this one report. And it it would have been a great situation for a public editor to dive into. And and then just to bring it forward even more to the present, there is an editorial in today's newspaper, June 14th, which linked literature sent out by Sarah Palin's political action committee to the shooting of U.S. Congresswoman Gabby Giffords in 2011. The editorial was about our divisive political culture and climate. Uh, There was obviously huge backlash to that, and the Times actually did add a correction to its article uh, later in the day. So I'm I'm curious, Christy, do you think that's some vindication for this view that Twitter could act as a public editor of sorts? No, because you're still missing the authority that comes with a public editor position. Whether you have that position or not, papers should be engaging with their readership and like open to comments and complaints and whatever on Twitter, other social media platforms, comment pages. So I don't think that it replaces the other. The unique position of the public editor is that she was embedded within the newsroom, had direct access to the people who wrote that story, who were behind it, could get actual answers, and then ultimately was she had the stamp of... The Times, you know, institutional approval, institutional approval. Exactly. And so I just don't think that there's. Yeah, it's just Twitter. I mean, it's just one part of the solution. I don't think that it replaces it at all. Right. I think there's also something to be said for, you know, proactively addressing criticism and potential criticism as opposed to just responding to it when it reaches some certain threshold of volume. Exactly. It's like, you know, in newspapers, it's like the letter to the editor's page. You know, you'll print letters and then sometimes there'll be like an editor's note or a response from the author or whatever on that page. That's like what the whole Twitter conversation is like just in, you know, modern form. It's not the same thing as some independent part, not independent, but some like specific individual, not another party. (laughs) It's not the same thing (laughs) as a separate party going in and investigating the problem. Right. And what's lost is the narrative of how something went wrong if it did. And more importantly, what corrections will be taken, what new firewalls will be put in place or procedures will be added that would avoid this sort of thing happening in the future. All right. Moving on to sports, a topic that I think we should be covering way more of than we are at this point. I agree. I've lost a lot of hours to following the NBA playoffs, so I would love it if that could be put to productive use. All right. We, we will uh, work on that. Even so, though I'll admit that in the office today, as we were prepping for the podcast and talking about the NBA playoffs, I kept hearing NBA playoffs, which to me sounds a lot more exciting. Right. Columbia has a great business school as well. Yes. <laughs> I just, I'm imagining. Not so, a very good still, basketball team. I'm still <laughs> imagining like a... Like a championship of sorts? Like there's some kind of, <laughs> there's something with the, anyway, I'm sorry, I'm a nerd. Well, okay. turning Move to the along. actual <laughs> N- NBA champions uh, <laughs> who are, as sorry. we record, I think, on their parade route somewhere in San Francisco or Oakland. Right. Um, basically, hours after the Golden State Warriors defeated the Cleveland Cavaliers in game five of the NBA championship, reports and tweets started flying around the internet Uh, that the Warriors, many of whose players uh, and their head coach, Steve Kerr, have been outspoken about Donald Trump as president, that they would be boycotting the traditional trip to the White House that 
the champions of all major sports receive. And this was all linked back to one tweet from a CNBC contributor that cited reports. Those reports didn't exist. Reports were doing a, a heavy lift in this situation. Right. It was, <laughs> it was one of those kind of circular the report, yeah, citing of reports that cited other reports that circled back to the same thing. But it, it, And basically, people the next day from fact checkers and, and the sort of Snopes.coms of the world said, while this might end up being true that they are not going to attend the White House, there's no statement. The Warriors said that decision hasn't been made once someone actually got in touch with the team. And it hadn't even been discussed. These guys were drinking champagne and running up bar tabs. They weren't worried about voting on whether or not they would take a, a celebratory trip. But it, it's illuminative of a larger problem. Right. We, I mean, if you spend time on, on Twitter, this sort of thing happens every day, perhaps multiple times a day, where you have tweets that are you know, retweeted by people with larger followings that are in turn picked up by quasi-legitimate news organizations, which are in turn picked up by more legitimate news organizations. It's sort of the food chain of social media. And it leads to a lot of misinformation spreading. Some could be pretty comical uh, or just unimportant, uh, but others can lead to really big and blown up news stories that turn out to be wrong. Dave, you had a personal anecdote about this, didn't you? Right. You were going to share? Right. This is <laughs> this is actually uh, becoming my personal confessional. Uh, but over the weekend, people on Twitter were sharing a painting of Barack Obama. It was supposedly his official White House portrait. And people were going crazy because he was wearing a tan suit in this portrait. It was the infamous tan suit of Obama in the spring of 2014. He wore it to a White House press conference. The entire press corps remember, remember made fun of him. Remember the days of those scandals? Right, <laughs> right exactly. <laughs> Dijon right. mustard. We were all younger then. <laughs> um, but it turns out that this image circling the internet, which had been retweeted and shared tens if not hundreds of thousands of times, seen potentially by millions of people, it was just a normal painting by a Dutch artist, not Obama's official White House portrait. So I have to take this time to unfortunately make my first correction on the kicker. I retweeted the portrait. I spread fake news. I'm part of the problem. Damn it, Dave. I'm so disappointed. Think before you tweet my friends. All right, moving on to our next topic. On Monday, newly minted NBC anchor Megyn Kelly began promoting an upcoming interview with Alex Jones, frontman for Infowars.com. She tweeted out a 90-second clip previewing her sit-down set to air Sunday, and the outtakes weren't exactly stellar. Take a listen. We talked controversies and conspiracies. 9-11. Now, 9-11 was an inside job, but when I say inside job, it means criminal elements in our government working with Saudi Arabia and others wanted to frame Iraq for it. Just a fact. Sandy Hook. Well, Sandy Hook's complex because I've had debates where we've devil's advocates said the whole story's true, and then I've had debates where I've said uh, that none of it's true. When you say parents faked their children's death, people get very angry. Yeah, well, let's, oh, I know. As we've mentioned before on the show, Alex Jones is a conspiracy theorist and performance artist. He's a Sandy Hook and 9-11 truther. He pushes a clash of civilization narrative to a massive digital audience, and his programs have been graced and praised by the likes of President Donald Trump. The internet, as it's wont to do, erupted in a storm of criticism over Kelly's decision to interview Alex Jones. Many inside and outside of the media argued that an interview with such a figure only gives a larger platform to hate, lies, and confusion. Many even called for NBC to pull the interview entirely. I'm just curious, guys, what do you make of that, Christy? Is there value to interviewing figures like Alex Jones, figures who have made a business and a livelihood out of essentially confusing people into believing 
conspiracy theories? I feel like what people want to hear is a one-word answer, yes or no. And the truth is that it's insanely complicated. Is there value in interviewing someone like Alex Jones? Yeah, there's value in that. But is there value or is it the right thing to do to do a one-on-one interview and release that into the world with no other context and no other investigation and no other follow-up and then just like see what happens? I don't know. I think that borders on on irresponsible. You know, Margaret Sullivan had a really nice column about that that came out this week. And I think she makes some great points in that column. And, and basically what she suggests, which I think is probably what NBC should do, is you take the interview that has happened. You don't release it as a one-on-one interview. You use it as a basis for a longer and more substantial investigation that doesn't just involve Megyn Kelly, that involves like top other members of the investigative team. So I pose this question to CGR members in our weekly newsletter. You should all become members at CGR.org. But I asked them what the value was for interviewing a figure like this. And many of them responded in the negative. They basically said that if our goal as journalists is to educate people, is to reduce confusion, is to give them true information, then by showing an interview with a figure such as Alex Jones, we are actually inhibiting that mission. So we have so many tools within our journalistic toolkit. Maybe this particular tool is not the best tool for dealing with someone like Alex Jones. Pete, what do you make of that argument? I understand where it's coming from. Uh, Alex Jones is a foul creature from the fever swamps of I mean, calling it right wing is is almost doing a disservice to those actually. <laughs> yeah, that's, on a, that's the right a good wing. point yeah. to make here. Yeah. Um, he is. I mean, as his lawyer said in a recent child custody hearing in, during Alex Jones's divorce, he's a performance artist. He's playing a character. At the same time, that character has a ton of followers. People watch his videos, and he has influence. Right, Donald Trump called into his show and told him he's doing great work, and I'll be watching. So this is a figure who is newsworthy, regardless of what else you think about him. He's newsworthy. And I'm going to take the opposite uh, approach from our readers at the risk of uh, incurring their wrath. (laughs) I think a one-on-one interview done right can be the best vehicle for taking down a figure like this or exposing a figure like this. Done right is the key part of that, though. And that's the thing that nobody, I mean, no one knows yet whether this interview is going to have been done right. Like what we've seen of it so far, the snippets and sneak peeks and whatever, and what we've seen of Megyn Kelly's one-on-one interviews in the past, none of that leads us to believe that this is going to be the interview, quote unquote, done right. Um, we could all be proven wrong. Yeah, just just for some context, why, yeah. uh, Megyn Kelly was at Fox News for about a dozen years or so. She was part of such misleading narratives as the new Black Panthers being a threat to democracy. Uh, she obsessed over things such as Santa Claus being white. Uh, she was certainly part of the Fox Fear Factory, and that baggage is is, is haunting her. So I'm I'm curious whether she can sort of you know come out of the shadow of that. I'm I'm dubious, but uh, I think it's worth giving her a shot. I wonder, would we feel differently if it was Katie Couric doing the interview or Jake Tapper? Probably yes. I mean, I, that's that's interesting. I then, a, in, hmm. yeah, I I wonder how much of this conversation is tied up in people's feelings about Megyn Kelly. She had an interview with Vladimir Putin two weeks ago on the first episode of her new NBC show that I think objectively you could argue she didn't handle great. She didn't push back against some of his slippery dodges. He's a former KGB officer. He knows what he's doing, um, as does Alex Jones, right? He's a, a media creation, um, a self-made media creation. 
But at the same time, you look at one-on-one interviews in the past that have exposed people for their lack of knowledge or for who they are or for the things they've done, right? For us, Nixon being the kind of shining example. But I mentioned Katie Couric earlier. She had that Sarah Palin interview during the 2008 campaign. What what newspapers do you read? Yeah. I mean, (laughs) and that's a pretty simple, straightforward question, right? Like she was following up on something Palin had said, I, I think, and it exposed something about Sarah Palin that people responded to. So we haven't seen this interview. Um, On Monday morning, I will be happy to judge and cast aspersions if they're earned. But I I don't know, as a a vehicle like in and of itself, I don't know if the one-on-one interview is something we should discard for figures who we think are too dangerous or controversial. I think the more important question, too, rather than this one interview and whether this one interview is going to air and whether the one interview is done correctly is what do news organizations do with people like Alex Jones, right? Because this is now this huge subculture that's spreading like an infectious disease throughout the country. And it does have a real influence, not just on the, I mean, like you're looking at first-time voters, you're looking at some very young people, a lot of very young men who are really true followers of this guy. And so, yeah, like what he's promoting is bigotry and hatred and half-truths or no-truths. Look, we're devoting a lot of resources to, you know, just select few stories. Biggest one of the day right now is Russia, right? It's not that that isn't important. It is important. But there are other stories out there, too. And one of those stories is what's happening to the kind of, you know, quote unquote, American culture. And it's, it's what's happening with this subculture that's continuing to steep and brew and multiply and whatever other analogy I can figure out to squeeze in there, you know, throughout the country. Some investigative teams need to be devoted to that, too. Right. Not just as one person, but what's happening in this cultural shift that we're all experiencing. I guess one of the reasons I really struggled with this is while I do think we should devote far more resources to these figures who are incredibly influential online, if you spend any time on the social web, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or whatnot, they really drive discussion in a way I think a lot of mainstream media don't fully understand or acknowledge. Uh, But they cannot, people like Alex Jones cannot be held accountable to the truth the way even a Sarah Palin can be held accountable to the truth. They exist in a different plane of reality than most of the people who listen to this podcast, at least I hope, exist. And so I just don't know if you could have the same sort of moments where you expose them because they cannot be shamed into telling the truth. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, the vast majority of people in America think Alex Jones is crazy, myself included. But if you give him, if you're Megyn Kelly, if you give him a platform where he's reaching five or 10 million people, you are still airing a lot of half-truths or no-truths that you can while debunk at the same time, you are still exposing them to millions of people. So even if 1% of those people say, hey, you know what, that sounds kind of interesting. Like, let me go look into that. That risks sort of exposing them to this contagion, as you put it. So I I struggle. I don't know if that's reason enough not to do the interview. I don't think so. I think it just means you have to be really careful with how you frame it and use it within your broader reporting. Absolutely. Yeah. And I hope we'll see a long lead in of information where Megyn Kelly and the team at NBC News explains exactly who and what Alex Jones is. Uh, After the interview runs on the program, I hope that we'll see uh, specific debunking of the invariably outrageous claims he makes. But I think we have to trust that the ability of journalists to hold people accountable to a version of reality 
is strong enough and that journalists can tell a story well enough to express to their audiences what is going on here and who this person is. Right. Maybe that's Pollyanna-ish, but I, I hope that that's what we see. I mean, I, I hope you're right, too, and I, I hope for the best for Megyn Kelly. I, but I, I would also say, you know, per your point, Chrissy, about including this in a larger report, I'm less interested in Alex Jones and in sort of an in-depth interrogation of his views and how he got to them than I am why he is such a popular figure on the Internet. This guy has millions of Facebook and Twitter followers. People clearly follow him. I would like to see some sort of survey analyzing why exactly people get their foot into the, to the door of InfoWars and then why they become devotees of InfoWars and whether, in fact, they are watching this and believing it or whether they are like me and watch it just for entertainment value because he's hilarious on his show. Like, I'll, just, for, I'll admit just for our listeners, yeah. uh, you know, little peek behind the curtain here. I will <laughs> often glance over my shoulder in our newsroom and see Dave chuckling into his headphones as he watches an Alex Jones right. video. Right. I, I can't remember the last person who made me giggle like Alex Jones does. <laughs> that's, that's the pull quote. Right. If this were a story that we were writing up, the transcription, if we wrote the transcription of this podcast and we posted it online, the pull quote that I would choose is, no one makes me giggle like Alex Jones. Right. I mean, yeah, Dave I mean, Uberti. it's, yeah, it, it is, it is funny and it's easy to make fun of, but I mean, it also belies the fact, I mean, Roger Stone is a frequent guest in the sh show. Roger Stone was one of the architects of Donald Trump's political rise. So while us sort of serious observers can look at this guy and say, hey, this is hilarious. Like, did you catch what Alex Jones said the other day? It's a very serious force within American politics and media. So I think it you know, it behooves us to take bigger cracks at it. So at the very least, I'm happy that NBC took a crack at it. Yeah. And I think that what you said, Dave, is right on. It's not just about this one person. It's about the phenomenon. It's about the culture. How do people start following somebody like that, what brings people into that subculture? You know, what infects them <laughs> with for, the contagion? Right. For me, it was the shirtless, <laughs> uh, shirtless drunk temper tantrums. That was uh, what brought me into the Alex Jones world. Oh, well, yeah, those are hard to resist. I On that note. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right. Well, now that we know what Dave will be doing this weekend. <laughs> right. Let's end there. <laughs> All right, moving on to our next segment. We often talk in this podcast about journalism from the halls of power, but we typically gravitate toward President Trump and his relationship with the White House press corps. But there are many different sides to political reporting in Washington, including Capitol Hill, where a growing pack of hungry congressional reporters run down members of Congress in the Capitol building's hallways. Joining me now to talk about what it's like to report on the Hill, particularly in a time of immense change in Washington, is a good friend of mine, James Arkin, a congressional reporter for Real Clear Politics. James, how's it going? Good. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure to be with you. Yeah, I'm glad I finally got you in the show. Yeah, I've been waiting for it. So tell me a little bit about where reporters work in the Capitol. We see news stories every day about you know legislation being introduced, votes being cast, speeches taking place in the chambers of Congress. Where do reporters hang out? Where do you actually do your work? The hallmark of Capitol Hill reporting is that it is a really open building, a surprisingly open building. Uh, so I would say, generally speaking, where you find reporters is any number of hallways in the Capitol, essentially, uh, whether it's the basement waiting for the, uh, the trains that take senators from their office buildings to the Capitol for mm. votes, whether it's uh, the basement outside of a meeting room where House Republicans meet, uh, whether it's the hallways of the office buildings themselves for catching members coming out of their offices or coming out of hearings. 
It's really just any variety of hallways where you can stand, wait for senators or uh, members of the House who are meeting, and then catch them for anywhere from 30 seconds to two minutes as they walk to the nearest elevator or the nearest door that we're not allowed in. So it's uh, a lot of time in hallways, spend a lot of time just waiting outside meeting rooms, and uh, you catch members as, as they're walking around the Capitol. So you're literally roaming the halls of power. I mean, how are you able to do that? I'm, I'm, I imagine that not just anyone can basically just walk in and grab a member of Congress. We're credentialed through the, uh, the press galleries. They have radio, TV, daily print, and periodical print. Yeah, everyone gets a congressional pass. Who covers this place? And, and then you have really free reign uh, of the building. I mean, there are certain places, obviously, that only lawmakers can go. But for the most part, it's, it's very wide open. It's got a lot of space for, for reporters to roam. And so there are days I'll, I'll set my computer down at a desk in the, uh, in the press gallery, and then I'll go walk around hallways for five or six hours and just see what lawmakers I can find, see who I'm looking for, try and wait outside different meeting rooms. And just, you know, you catch interviews as you find members walking around the Capitol. I don't think there's any workplace like it, particularly for journalism. It's, it's very open and it's very you know, of the moment, just kind of walking around, seeing who you can bump into. It seems pretty glamorous, you know, hanging out in basements and basically stalking lawmakers as they're uh, in meeting rooms. Uh, it's, it's incredibly glamorous. I can't tell you the number of times when <laughs> there's some sort of fiscal crisis or some sort of problem come in, and I spend my, uh, my evening in a uh, dingy, darkly lit basement hallway waiting while lawmakers try and figure out how they're going to fund the government or how they're going to work out this crisis or that crisis. It's, it's extremely glamorous. Which is exactly how the sausage gets made in Washington. <laughs> so I, I can recall from my time there, I was an intern with the Boston Globe covering Congress for them. One of my you know, lasting memories is trying to run down Elizabeth Warren, senator from Massachusetts in the hallways, and her frequently taking what appeared, at least to me, as fake phone calls uh, in order to dodge reporters, essentially. I'm kind of curious on, on how you know, members of Congress deal with these hordes of reporters. I, I, you, know, you see all these pictures in newspapers and news accounts and whatnot of you know, various members just being surrounded, swamped by you know, 20, 30 people at a time. You know, it depends on the individual lawmaker. I mean, Elizabeth Warren is a little bit notorious in the Capitol for not talking to congressional press. So she generally, reporters don't even try to catch her. She moves around the Capitol because she refuses those hallway interviews. And a number of senators do that. Some love them. Some, you know, you'll have 20 reporters surrounding a, a senator and, and shoving microphones in their faces, and, and they'll stand there for 10, 15 minutes just fielding every single question. So it's, it's an individual uh, lawmaker by lawmaker thing. But uh, it's, some days it's very quiet. You can, you can wait, and you can catch people on a one-on-one -on -one basis and, and have a real conversation. Sometimes you get 20 reporters surrounding one person. Everyone wants to ask about something different, and you just kind of shove your arm in there with, with your microphone rolling and, and hope that your question gets asked or hope that there's an opening for you to throw a question in, especially on days that are busy or when they're handling things like, like the health care bill right now, where a lot of different news outlets have a lot of different questions for lawmakers. It can be a, it can be a pretty hectic environment. Are there any people who come to mind who you think enjoy that sort of situation? I mean, th there's, there's sort of this ideal of these old senators who sort of like to play the game and whatnot, but I'm just kind of curious of, of in real life whether that's the case. So first off, I'll say one, one thing about reporting on the Capitol is that in general, I think lawmakers and the press have a, a very good relationship up here. They, they know we're up here to do our jobs. We understand what their jobs are, and there's a really good give and take. Some that come to mind are Bob Corker, uh, senator from Tennessee, who's chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, John McCain, chairman of the Armed Services Committee, obviously a former presidential candidate. Some senators like that who they'll sit and they'll hold court with reporters for as long as we have questions. They love being able to talk about the issues that they're working on, being able to get their message out there. And, you know, it's, it's one of these things where it can be very adversarial at times, but you also have to remember that 
these these lawmakers want to get their message out. And so right. the, the press corps is the easiest way for them to do that. And so those who are practiced at it, those who have been here for a long time, understand that. And so they'll sit and they'll talk and they'll answer your questions and they'll get their point across. And they they love the back and forth. Some of them in particular just absolutely thrive on it. Right. It's a pretty incredible part of our system, which, I, which is why I think there was such immediate backlash earlier this week when television reporters were actually told by the director of the Senate Radio and Television Gallery that they could no longer film impromptu interviews with senators in Capitol hallways, quoting there from a Politico report. What did you hear about these you know, proposals coming down? What was the immediate response among people who were on the Hill? And what, if any, was the resolution? So the immediate response was a lot of confusion. So TV reporters sometimes have cameras, mobile cameras, um, and they'll, they'll wait outside of committee hearings and they'll grab lawmakers as they roam the, uh, the hallways of the office buildings to catch them as they're coming out of hearings, ask them questions, do impromptu interviews. And it's, you know, it's a wonderful way for television networks to be able to, uh, you know, to get interviews. It's, it's hard to schedule a time to set up something. So right. Impromptu ones are great. And uh, it seemed like some were told that that was no longer going to be allowed, that they were going to block these hallway interviews. There was some concern about the safety of having cameramen walking backwards or, or walking through the hallways. Uh, there, it sparked a lot of outrage. I, I mean, people immediately on Twitter were calling for, for this to be changed back to the way it's been. By the end of the day, it was, as far as I'm, I'm concerned, and obviously I'm a print reporter, so I, you know, I don't work with the radio TV gallery, but as far as I was aware, it was a very short moment where some of the rules were changed and things are kind of back to the way they were already. Uh, they were, right. I think, back to the way they were by the end of that day. But there is a concern. I mean, things have been extremely hectic up on the Hill. There right. are enormous crowds in the Capitol these days. The basement is flooded, and it's a, in some ways a dangerous situation. And a lot of these you know? senators and members of Congress are in their 80s. I mean, yeah, it's, exactly. it's, uh, one you fall could be a bad, a bad deal for them. Old. Orrin Hatch comes to mind. He's He's been in the Senate for decades. He's I believe, in his early 80s. And, you know, if a reporter trips, bumps into him and knocks him over, that's a really dangerous situation. And I think people are concerned about it. So the overcrowding in the Capitol is, is definitely of concern. But certainly, I, I don't think blocking reporters' access is, is the right way to go about it. Um, so there's there's a balancing act there. Uh, everyone's trying to figure it out. You know, the, the age of President Trump and, and the age of just crazy news cycles that we're in right now is left everyone kind of, you know, hectic and, and running around and just kind of scrambling to cover all of the news that there is. And I think everyone kind of needs to work a little harder to find that, you know, sweet spot to find the balance where it isn't a, a dangerous situation. I mean, I, I saw a member of Congress get bumped in the head by a cameraman who was trying to conduct an interview with another member of Congress during a meeting during the health care debate in the House. It's, you know, there, there are some safety concerns there for sure. And, and you sort of led into my next question here. Uh, so, so you've been on the Hill, what, three, three years and change now, something like that? About two and a half years. Okay. So you got, you got a little flavor of the pre-Trump era, and now we are solidly in the Trump presidency. I'm just curious on how the tenor of reporting Uh, has or has not changed on the Hill under Trump. As news consumers, as us watching from a distance, it seems like everyone's hair is on fire. It's very difficult to understand what exactly is going on to keep track of everything that's going on. But I'm curious, since you see it up close, what is the situation like within those hallways, as you said? Are, Are people reacting to the news the same way that we are? Yeah, everyone's hair on fire is a good way to put it, because that is the general, I think, consensus of everyone who's involved in news these days. You know, when I came up here in 2015, uh, it was right at the very beginning of the presidential cycle last year. Things were busy on Capitol Hill. I mean, they're never quiet, but it was definitely noticeably different the start of this year with, with the Trump presidency. And I think it's a lot more reactive. You have a lot of reporters up here 
who are reacting to news, uh, trying to get quotes, trying to get reaction from senators. Uh, and you have a lot of people up here who have been up here for a long time. And I, mean, I, I don't profess to have you know, been covering Capitol Hill for as long as a lot of the, the veteran reporters who are up here. But it's noticeably different. The crowds are larger. Uh, there are more people looking for questions. And it's, it's just it's made the news gathering environment in the Capitol a lot more difficult. I, I mean, I was talking with a reporter the other day. I can remember being up in the Senate during the, the middle of the presidential campaign last year. And on certain days, you could get a one-on-one with half a dozen senators in a couple of hours just hanging out in the basement because all the reporters were out on the campaign trail. Things were quiet here. And it was a great news gathering environment. You have all these one-on-one conversations. You're able to really talk to these people. And nowadays, you just can't do that. Every time you approach a senator, every time you approach a member of the House, there's at least a half dozen other reporters around there. It's, uh, it's become just an incredibly hectic uh, reactive and uh, news environment. It's, it's very different than it was when I first got up here. Right. With, with, a, with a flood of new people coming in, would you say that this is a lot of different folks from American media? Or these are international media coming to flood in? I mean, American politics, it's always a global story, but it's, it seems to become even more global now than it has been in the past. There certainly are some uh, global reporters here, but for the most part, I think it's just an increase in American press, uh, you mm. see a, a lot of bureaus have just increased the number of people that they have on Capitol Hill every day. They had a lot of reporters from the campaign trail or reporters that they staffed up during the election. And so a lot of those people shifted over to covering Congress uh, now that there's no election to cover. In a lot of ways, I think there aren't necessarily that many new outlets up here. It's just that every outlet up here has a swarm of reporters mm. now. Uh, covering every single tiny little angle of, of news that we have. Right, flooding the zone. So I just wanted to end with one other newsier bit. So yesterday, Wednesday, a member of Congress, Steve Scalise, was shot along with a few Capitol Hill police officers do, during a practice for a congressional softball game. Uh, news broke early in the morning. I think I recall getting news alerts around 8 a.m. Eastern time. I was just curious, you know, for a congressional reporter, what was the rest of the day like? Take me through the play-by-play of how people on the Hill were reacting to that, both in terms of, you know, the aides who are trying to figure out where exactly all their people are and how they're going to react, but also uh, with reporters and actually covering that news. I heard about the news as I was still at home in the morning, filed and and got to the Capitol as quickly as I could. I, I got there maybe two hours after the shooting had taken place place. And uh, it was, uh, you know, unlike any other day that I'd seen on the Hill. Uh, I mean, there were members of Congress standing in Statuary Hall in, in different parts of the Capitol, still in their baseball uniforms, still dirty from practice, still walking around in cleats uh, in, in the Capitol, giving interviews to cable news and, and talking to reporters about what they'd seen. A lot of emotion. They talked to a number of members of Congress yesterday who were choking up, who were clearly visibly shaken and, and very emotional. Steve Scalise is a, is a really popular member among House Republicans. I mean, obviously, he's, he's the vote counter. He's the whip. So he works pretty closely with individual members, and he's, he's very popular among them. And so they were, they were shaken up. They were concerned. I think that everyone had felt like things had kind of been escalating and, and that it had been a, a tough political environment for the last couple of months. I don't know that anyone expected anything like this to happen, but everyone just kind of was very reflective. And it was a tough, somber mood up here. It was a, unlike any other day in the Capitol. Well, we certainly hope that things will cool down both for you and for members of Congress. James Arkin of Real Clear Politics. Jamie, thanks so much for being on the show. Appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me. That was our show. Thank you so much for kicking it with us, InfoWars aficionados. Subscribe to our show on iTunes, on SoundCloud, on Overcast, wherever you get your podcasts these days. And please follow the kicker at kickercjr on Twitter. We'd love to hear more of your feedback. 
Thanks again to my special guest, James Arkin of Real Clear Politics, and my colleagues, Pete Vernon and Christy Chisholm. Thanks again for kicking it with us. We'll see you next week. 